right, we are going to continue in our study of Genesis, and we find ourselves with Noah getting off the ark, and uh, what develops immediately after their exit from the ark, Genesis chapter 8, and if you have the Simplified, that is on page 7, okay, so uh, hopefully you can find Genesis 8, all right, um, let's uh, read we're actually at the end of Genesis 8. We're going to begin in verse 20, and then we're going to read in through, into chapter 9 down through verse 17. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and um, we'll read down to 9:17. Is there a couple folks that can read from the Simplified along with me? All right, Deborah can read. Anyone else? Okay. All right, well, uh, Deborah and I shall sever the section. Um, Deborah, why don't you read verse 20 and read to chapter 9, verse 7, and then I'll pick up in verse 8 and read to verse 17. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, to verse 7 of chapter 9. Okay, Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. And reading down to chapter 9, verse 7. And God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And be I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no longer become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Brother Rosario, would you pray for us, please? Amen. Well, I've entitled the lesson today, A Whole New World. All right. And when Noah got off, there was a whole new world waiting for him. And because of how dark and nasty and probably awful the ark, being on the ark was, I imagine that any world would have been an improvement off of being in the ark. But uh, when he gets off, what's, one of the, what's the first thing he does? In verse 20, we find him doing what? He builds an altar. And I think this altar was an altar of thanksgiving. Um, it may also be an altar for sacrifice of sins. We don't know for sure, but we know he offers a sacrifice. He builds an altar. Now, Cain and Abel offered sacrifices, right? But we don't find the word altar with them. This is the first occurrence of the word altar in the Bible, is with Noah coming off of the ark. And so it was a new world that Noah came off and, and into. It was a different world, and we'll see that more on into chapter 9. In chapter 8, we see what happens in the heart of God and, and the thoughts of God that he has, and the Bible records them for us. Verse 21 tells us, The Lord smelled a sweet savor, that is from the altar, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike any longer every living thing as I have done. Now, if we were to just look at this verse in separation from the context, we would think God is saying, I will never judge the earth at all again. But the, the surrounding context tells us that he's never going to judge the earth with a flood again. But it's interesting how the verse says, um, the verse says, because man's heart, let's see here, how does it say it there? The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. I think God is affirming that even these ones coming off the ark are still sinners. Like, if, if they were somehow perfect and all the, the real awful people had been removed, he would be like, all right, now we fixed it. We're all good. But God is already saying, look, I'm not going to do this again because they're, they still have a wicked heart. And, and um, you know, and so he, he restrains himself from judging the world in that manner by the manner of a flood. And he talks about the curse as well. Notice he says, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. So do we remember the, the curse on the ground that came out of Eden? Genesis 3, right? God cursed the ground there in Eden. And so the ground was cursed there. But here he says, I will not curse it again. Well, this is the curse, I think, of the flood. And he says, I'm not going to curse in this way again as I have with this flood. So God's not saying you made a mistake, but rather I think what he's saying is that I've done this once and this will not be needed nor useful a second time. Um, and so we, we get to listen to God's thoughts and we don't have, you know, this whole book is full of God's thoughts, isn't it? But it's kind of interesting to have it more specifically laid out where it says God thought in his heart like it does this. All right, in verse 22, it says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, 
and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Um, and so we, we have God promising that um, the cycles of life, as he gives them here, will continue. He will not interrupt them. It sounds like the flood interrupted them, okay? I think that's the idea. Some people say the, the first world before the flood never had any of these things. We don't know that for sure. Um, some people think that the water canopy created an environment where there wasn't quite the seasons or maybe the degree of seasons. We don't know some of that for sure, but we know at least the flood itself would have interrupted that, right? When you have 40 days of, of rain, and then do you remember how long they were on the ark? Does anyone remember? It was, the rain was 40 days and 40 nights, but they were on the ark for about a year, okay? So it was a very long time that they were on the ark. And it seems like during that time, the earth went through great change, great cataclysmic change. And so there was, I believe, an interruption in the seasons, if they were prior. Or if, they, if there were no seasons prior, then there was a beginning of the seasons from that point on, or throughout, coming out of that, there were seasons. And so God says, this is how it's going to be. Um, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, okay? Now, day and night, let's think about that for a minute. Why would being on the ark have interrupted day and night? Well, the rain, 40 days and 40 nights of rain is, is dark. And then also being on the ark, they would, would appear to be dark for them uh, a great deal. Um, and so they no longer would go through life where they lost these things. Now, if you have ever gone through a season of time, is there anyone that's worked third shift uh, like for 12 hours at a time? All right, we've got a couple. And when you work in the night and you sleep in the day and you don't see the sun much or at all, that can be really hard on your body. Um, and I imagine coming off the ark that they were a little, you know, <laughs> worse for wear, okay? And God says a reassuring thought in his mind that maybe he communicated to them is, we're not going to go through that again. There are some things in life that God says, if you've been through that, you won't have to go through that again. And thank God for that if it's something as cataclysmic as this or something. And sometimes we don't have that reassurance. We just don't know. But the point is, is God is a merciful God, isn't he? You know, the earth has deserved a flood since the flood. I don't know if you know that or not, but we've deserved it. All right. Over and over we've deserved it. But God is a merciful God, and he's already promised us that he will not judge the world in this way. Um, is there any question or comment? Verse 20, 21, 22. All right, who's got the mic? We have one right behind you there, son. Anyone after Brother Matthews? The senior, senior Brother Matthews there. The, the junior Brother Matthews will go next. Begin back there with the father. Global warming out of the water. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Cold and heat, okay? So the idea that there could be no more cold or no more heat. Now, Again, those terms are relative, but the idea that all of a sudden we'll just, everywhere turns into a desert, and everything bakes forever and ever, that's impossible. So God's promised it. A good point there. All right, up to um, Brother Jeremiah. Anyone after him? And, I mean, he kind of took what I was going to say, but the summer and winter is maybe even a better support, or, you know, argument against global warming than the cold and heat, because summer and winter would indicate you know, actual seasons. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always, you know, when people 
when I talk to people about global warming, you know, the basic premise of global warming is that the ice caps melt and the earth floods. Mm -hmm. But, you know, God's promise that he would never flood the earth is pretty much a promise against global warming. But this seems even more, you know, that's kind of an argument from logic. This, this verse seems to be more an argument directly from, you know, from what God says. Yeah. 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 All right. Anyone else? Uh, Deborah will be next. Anyone after Deborah? Question or comment? Okay. Back in chapter one, when God made the lights in the heavens, he talked about seasons. Okay. So there would have been some sort of seasons, right? Okay. Um, well, we know day and night were there because he specifically says day and night. Does it talk about seasons? Oh, four seasons. Okay. Okay. Now, um, okay. I'll have to give that some more thought. Um, and that is a good point. So, it, it could be that the seasons, so I, I for, for, to be clear here, I don't have a specific um, opinion or I haven't deeply thought about whether or not there were seasons or what they were like before the flood. So I'm not pushing either view here. But it's, he, he says the purpose of these things is for the seasons. So the seasons may not have been ex- as extreme before the flood where there was less variance. Um, or they could have been, God may have even created them with the intention that later there would be seasons, but that maybe seems like a little stress, uh, stretch. I'll have to look into that a little more. But All right. Let's go on to chapter 9 then. Notice first not chapter 9, verse 1, and God, what does it say? Blessed Noah and his sons. Now, God already blessed them by giving them an ark, by giving, instructing them to build the ark, right? He already blessed them by preserving their life through the flood. I mean, if that thing capsized, right, you know, it'd be a bad day. But God saw fit. He brought them through. And just that is the mercy and grace of God. But now they get off and it says God blessed Noah. And what I like to just point out here is this is grace upon grace, right? We have a God who gives grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. His mercies are new every morning. And it says he blessed Noah and his sons. And you know, after this curse of the flood, which, you know, they were in the ark, but they still went through the flood, right? It was still a very difficult time. And they escaped the, the effect of the curse of the flood, but they went through the flood. Now comes the blessing of God. And if you listen to what it says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. This is a blessing that God gives. It sounds like instructions, doesn't it? it sounds like commands, but it's a blessing as well. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, I hope this sounds familiar to you. Who else was told this? Adam and Eve were told this. And so Noah and his three sons being the only family, it's very important that they get this same message as well. If they just, um, you know, die off, then the whole human race dies off. So it's very important they have children. And they must have had, again, similarly to Adam and Eve, they must have intermarried siblings, just like Adam and Eve intermarried, well, their children, intermarried siblings, and they must have stayed somewhat close to each other, at least for a while, in order to have children, and that their children would be of age to marry, and and so I don't quite know how quickly they spread, but we know that they spent some time together when they got off. All right, so then, verse 2, and the fear of you, so, okay, so, I'm sorry, verse 1, I see this as the new command. And it's an old command, but it's new in that it's given to Noah to replenish the earth. It's restated in verse 7. So God was very clear in putting it out there two times. 
So we have the new command. In verse 2, this new world has a new fear. Verse 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every fowl of the air, on all that moves on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So here we, we, I call this the new fear. It appears that before the flood, the animals were not scared of humans. They, there was not that divide like we have currently. And there's a future date where that status will return, right? The lion will lay down with the lamb. And so it, we understand that in, that in the new you know, kingdom, that that attitude between humans and animals will be restored. But for now, there's a fear. Now, some people say that this is important too, that if God didn't intervene with the idea of the fear, if, if the harmony was broken down, but there was no fear of man, the animals could wipe out man, right? I mean, grizzly bears probably got off the ark, okay? Um, other animals that could easily kill. And so God put a, a fear there. But notice he also says, into your hand they are delivered. The word delivered means given. They're given to you. They're delivered into your hand. And what we see with this new fear is a, a I guess you'd call it an emphasizing or a strengthening of the difference between animals and humans. Because man already had dominion over the animals before, but it was even extended to a deeper level now where man, there was a fear there, but man was still to have dominion over them. So there's, um, it emphasizes the humanity of humans and the animalness of animals, which as we march forward in our, uh, you know, postmodern world, um, sometimes that becomes parallel or even elevated, where animals are treated just like humans or higher than humans. And God clearly says they're delivered into your hand, right? They're to be in subjection to you. So we see that in a lot of ways. We see it with eating, with hunting, with pets. And in various ways, animals are in subjection to humans. And that's how it should be, how it ought to be. And God determined it would be so in verse 2. So we see the new fear. And then in verse 3 and 4, we have a new diet. All right, a new diet. Let's read about the new diet. And it says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, even as the green herb. I have given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which, which is its blood, you shall not eat. All right, so God says, go ahead and eat the animals. Have dominion over the animals and eat the animals. So, uh, you know, I don't know who or which son did it first, but somewhere along the line, they started killing animals. Now, we got to remember that only so many got off the ark, right? So they probably didn't go off on like a massive hunting session like right after this. I think they probably, you know, let them populate a little bit. But sooner or later, those guys got to taste steak for the first time, all right? They got to taste turkey, and I don't know whatever else they tasted. But I imagine it was quite the experience, you know? Having lived 600 years as a vegetarian, and now in this new world, uh, they might have even sang the song, A Whole New World, A Beautiful Place to Be. What, no, it's not a beautiful, what is it? Dazzling place to be, yeah, as they were eating the meat, okay? Um, so we see the distinction there. But he says, everything is given to you. At the end of verse 3, I have given you all things. That's how it's phrased. I have given you all things. Well, here I see an aspect of property rights, which certainly existed with other things. But in this specific context, it's referring to animals, right? God has given animals 
specifically to the humans, and I think it means in an ownership sense. So before the animals were kind of like, you know, around, they were maybe more harmonious with the humans, but now they're subjugated and there's a more direct ownership idea. And then in verse 4, we, we have the reference of not eating the blood, okay? So eating flesh with blood in it is uh, forbidden here. And I think the idea, if you read it carefully, notice it says, um, but flesh with the life thereof, which is its blood, you shall not eat. So I understand this to mean that you don't rip flesh off of a living animal, and it's probably an, an element of mercy in that we don't torture animals. Um, but also, perhaps there's a health element in there too that it's not good to eat um, meat with, with blood in it. But, um, but notice how it calls it life. Flesh with the life thereof, which is its blood. So there's a connection between blood and life, right? I think that's rather important when it comes to another story in the Bible, right? That is when Jesus gave his blood for us, right? That is, he gave his life for us. And as uh, a teacher pointed out to me many years ago in fifth and sixth grade, it would not be sufficient for Jesus to be hanged to take our place. And it would also not be sufficient if he slit his wrist and dropped some blood on the ground and then held it and healed his wrist and went on with his life, right? That would not be sufficient, right? It had to be death and it had to be blood. And specifically, he gave his life blood and he gave his life. So both elements are important. So um, we rejoice in the blood of Christ and we understand that to mean the blood itself as well as the life, all right? Both of them are important and we don't denigrate either one of those. Um, all right, questions or comments on ver the first four verses here about diet, about the new command, and about the new fear? Anyone at all? Okay. All right, well, let's move on then. Verse 5, And surely your blood of your lives I will require. At the hand of every beast I will require it at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Let's do verse 6 as well. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So in verse 5 and 6, we have a new, what do I call this? The new, a new punishment, all right? Now, murder has happened before. But if you remember with Cain, did Cain pay with his life? He did not. God placed a mark on him to protect him from his life being taken. And so in the, before the flood, murder did not carry a capital punishment. We don't know if other murders took place. We would assume so with the wickedness of the world, but we don't know for sure. We have the one recorded. And then do you remember the, the boasting Lamech? Do you remember him? He may have killed someone or else he was bragging about it in a prophetic sense about killing, right? So we have a, an institution of capital punishment. Notice that it's not just capital punishment, but it says in verse 5, at the blood of your lives I will require, at the hand of every beast I will require it, at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then it says, whoever shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. A couple things to point out here. One is... It says in verse 6 that man is supposed to kill the man who takes blood. And the meaning of blood here is not just 
drips blood on the ground, but takes the life of the man, right? We've already seen that in context. So someone who takes someone's life is supposed to be killed by man. Well, the by man part is where we find government happening for the first time. Before the flood, the world was governed through family. And family was the measure and the metric and how, fam, you know, how there was organization on the earth. It was simply family. After the flood, there is family and there is human government. Now, human government, there was only three, three boys and their wives, right? So it wasn't like there was a progress here, right? Government developed. I don't think they had elections, okay? All right, it's like, all right, Shem, Ham, or Japheth, all right, take your pick. Who are you voting for, right? So this is something that developed over time. And, and, but clearly, you know, I think originally, like, had there been a murder very shortly there, probably the dad, you know, would have carried out this execution or whatever. But as time went on, it became evident that, look, we need, you know, this has to be carried out. And, and we have a development of government. And so this era of time is, some people call it the era of human government. And it lasts from Noah up to Abraham. And with Abraham, we have a new covenant that is added to the, the covenant with Noah. But um, a couple things here. Notice how it says that God will hold an animal responsible for taking a man's life. Do you see that in the text? It says in verse 5, at the hand of every beast. And I think this is important when it comes to um, just the mindset and the laws that people have with regard to animals, right? And for a long time, it was just guaranteed that if you had a pet or an animal that killed someone, that that pet would die, right? That was just understood. I think sometimes in our current culture, there are people that would oppose that. Um, but if we hold humans to be higher than animals, that's only fitting, right? And it fits with the Word of God right here. Next, we see... In, well, it's pretty straightforward uh, what's right after this. But at the end of verse 5, it talks about at the hand of every man's brother. Now, what do you suppose that connects with? In the, yes. Do you remember when God approached Cain? He said, what did he ask him? Where is Abel? Is that the, where is your brother Abel? And his answer was, am I my brother's keeper? And it's almost as if God is clearly saying, yes, you are your brother's keeper. I think what it's saying, and again, it's a little bit of interpretation, but I think what it's saying is that if you stand by and let someone else die, that God will require blood at your hands. Uh, I think it's a reference to standing up in defense for those who are given to be slain, okay? Um, which Proverbs talks about as well. So, uh, we, we see this, and uh, that's how I understand that. Now, in verse 6, notice the motive of why it is this way. This is really important. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Do you see that? The reason why a person should be put to death for murder is because the person they murdered was made in the image of God. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Is it a coincidence that our culture has less and less and less believed that people are made in the image of God and that capital punishment has become more and more and more rare? I think there's a connection, right? 
if everyone agrees we are made in the image of God and each person we meet is made in God's image and each person we made is a creation of God and they have a soul and they have a, a being that was made by God Almighty and that they have a reflection. Yes, it is corrupted by the fall, but there is still a reflection there of the very image of God himself. Don't you think it causes people to take the idea of taking someone's life very seriously? It does. On the other hand, if you start saying that, an, that humans are but animals, and animals kill animals, so, you know, I mean, if a dog kills a dog, you know, should we really kill the dog? And all of a sudden, you have a very different way of looking at things, don't you? If life has no purpose, if there is no God, if there's no giving account, if there is no God that says don't kill people, then you have a very different approach, don't you? And it's amazing how fundamental and how foundational simply believing in God is for a culture. And when a culture begins to not believe in God, you have less and less and less of the framework and the mindset and the reference of how God wants our world to work. Um, so there's a lot that probably could be said, but if you haven't caught on yet, the Bible teaches capital punishment. And I think that as we have limited ability with our vote and our voice, we should support capital punishment. Um, I think it's God's plan. I think it's scriptural. Um, and so I think that's uh, you know, straight out of the Bible. All right. Is there any other question or comment on these verses? Okay. Well, let's see if we can finish here then. Let's get into this final portion, verse 8 down to verse 17. And God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. So in these verses, we have what you might think of as the partners in the covenant or the partakers of the covenant. God says he makes the covenant with a number of um, parties. This is interesting. Noah, and then it says Noah's descendants, right? And then it says the animals. Now, I don't know about you, but before I read through this and thought through this, if you'd have said, who did God make the covenant with? I said, Noah. And then if somebody said, well, isn't there someone else that said, well, maybe with all of Noah's descendants, which can I just point out that God's made you a covenant? Because you're a descendant of Noah, right? This covenant is your covenant. I didn't think about it that way. I, God made a covenant with Noah. That's how I thought about it. God made a promise with Noah. No, God's made a promise with all of us. You and I are descendants of Noah. So he's made us a promise, and he's also promised to the animals. Now that struck me as a little interesting, but the flood certainly affected the animals, and only the ones that were on the ark survived, and similarly the humans, only the humans on the ark survived. And so he makes his covenant with, uh, with Noah, with Noah's descendants, and with all these animals. So these are the participants or the partners in the covenant. And then in verse 11, and I will establish my covenant with you. And now here we have the, the clauses or the details or the actual covenant itself. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there anymore be a flood to destroy the earth. All right. So specifically, there is never going to be a worldwide flood and Everyone's never going to die by a flood, 
and the earth is never going to suffer from a flood. All right, two basic pieces to the promise. And um, I think that's pretty straightforward, but is there any question or comment on verse 8 down to verse 11? All right. Well, let's wrap it up then with the token or the picture, the symbol in verse 12. And God said, this is the token of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Notice it says it's with every living creature. So this includes us. It includes all the animals. I mean, you could look at your dog and say, God has made a promise with you never to flood the earth again. Um, that's just one reason why animals exist, because God's made a promise not to wipe them all off the face of the earth um, by means of a flood. And so, uh, but the token, the symbol is the rainbow. All right. I think we're pretty familiar with this. And he uses the term uh, token here. The token or the sign or the symbol of the covenant is this rainbow. And notice that it says it's also for perpetual generations. So not only is the promise for everyone, but the symbol is for everyone. I don't believe there's anywhere in the world where it's impossible to see a rainbow. All right. Now, I suppose the desert, it's a lot more rare, right? Because you have to have rain to have a rainbow. But even anywhere there can fall rain on the ground, there would be this sign. I think it's pretty neat if you think about it, how the sign is directly related to the threat, right? You gotta have rain to have a flood, right? I mean, I guess you could go with the waters came up from the deep and run down that angle, but you get the point. The rain came for the first time on the flood. And so the first time they saw rain was the first time it actually flooded. And you would think then that the next time it rained, they'd be pretty concerned, right? Oh no, here comes the rain again. It's the rain. Where's the ark? We're too far from the ark, right? But God's given them this promise. And so when the rain comes, it's when you get to see the symbol. Now, I can't prove this, but I imagine the first time it rained, God made extra sure there was a rainbow there. Because he told them here it would be. And everyone, I, I think, that's lived decades has probably had a chance to see a rainbow. If nothing else, a picture of a rainbow. Is there anyone that here would say, I've never seen a rainbow? Anyone? I didn't think so. All right. I think pretty much everyone's seen a rainbow. But the rain is what brings the rainbow, right? If you never have rain, you don't get to see the rainbow, right? But the rain is what you're worried about if you're worried about a flood. So it's paired with it, I guess, is what I'm trying to show. And that pairing, I think, is what's so beautiful. With the trouble comes the promise. With the fear comes the reassurance. And um, God has set this in the clouds. The word that he uses, uh, where is that? Verse 13, I set my bow in the clouds. This, that word set is the same root that we found earlier where it says, I give you all things, or I have given you all things. And there's another word, it, it, there's three times where this word appears in different English words, and it simply means to give, right? To give. And I, I just see that God, as they, they get off the ark, God is giving. He's giving. He's giving. And his grace and his kindness is, is just flowing here. So he talks about the token further. Uh, verse 14, it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. Do you know what's interesting? The Bible doesn't say, and you will remember. 
It says, and I will remember. Who is being reminded by the bow? God is. Now, it's fine for us to be reminded of it too. But the Bible says that God will see it and God will remember. And part of us would maybe say, well, God doesn't forget, so why does it need to tell us that he'll remember? Well, maybe we need to say it this way. We need to remember that he remembers. And so God gave us the bow, and he said, when I see the bow, I'll remember. And I'm telling you, so when you see the bow, you'll remember that I remember. And um, I think that's a good way to, to think about it, you know, because our carnal minds sometimes think that God's forgotten. Not maybe this one. I mean, most of us don't really live in the fear of a flood. I don't think we do. Right? We've gotten kind of used to it. But I think for Noah and his kids, it was probably a great deal more reassuring than it is for us, right? But as we think about the story and we think about what it means, it should be really reassuring for us, shouldn't it? I mean, there is a spiritual promise when we see a rainbow, and it means something. All right, and verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no longer become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And, Noah, and God said to Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Um, we'll take, I want to talk about the application of this covenant, the token specifically of the covenant. Um, there's a, a few ways I want to think it through and then we'll close with any questions and I have a little poem I'll read at the end here. So first, the rainbow reminds us that blessing can follow cursing. And this was as they came off the ark, they offered the altar. God gives them this promise. It seems to be very much right, you know, right on there. I don't think it was three weeks later or something like that, okay? I can't prove this, but I wonder, I wonder if there weren't some clouds, right? When God gave this promise, I wonder if he showed them a rainbow, right? I don't know. But um, when we think about it, the idea is simply this, that those, those clouds that came for the flood were signs of the curse, right? I mean, that was a bad day when the flood happened. And the first time it rained, right? And so that was a sign of bad things to come. Like, that's the curse. But now God says, look, there's, there's going to be rain, but I want you to know that it's never going to flood the whole earth again. And every, there's this going to be this symbol, there's going to be this sign that, that you'll be able to see that will remind you. And it tells us that blessing can follow the cursing. You may have been through an experience in your life where you really have experienced the effects of sin, some awful event, some painful event. Satan wants you to think that from here on till the day you die, it's just cursing all the way. And the rainbow tells us there are blessings that follow the curse. Next, it reminds us that mercy can follow judgment. And very similar, maybe in some respects, that mercy can follow judgment. Maybe you've experienced chastening. Maybe you've experienced judgment in some way in your life. But the rainbow tells you there's mercy with the Lord. He will not always judge. His anger will not endure forever. There is joy in the morning. The rainbow tells us that hope can follow the darkness. Right? The, the time of the flood was a time of darkness. And not only did they have sunlight when they got out, but whenever they saw that first rainbow, they had a beautiful display of color. And it, it's just a symbol that there is hope after the darkness. And 
There is more that God is doing. It also, and now th- this gets a little more simple. It reminds us that God controls the weather. Right? God controls the weather. And He has determined in His almighty power, never again the whole earth shall be flooded. And you know what? It shall never happen. It cannot happen. It's impossible because God controls the weather. We are reminded that God remembers His promises. Now, we want to remember His promises, but the rainbow tells us that God remembers His promises. And He's put that bow so that we would know that He knows and He remembers His promises. I also thought about this. God could have just promised in His heart, like He kind of did in chapter 8, I'm just not going to flood the earth again, but He didn't have to tell us that. Right? What if God said, I'm not going to flood the earth again, but He didn't say that? You know how we would preach Genesis? We'd probably preach it like this. If you don't turn from your sins, God may send another flood. Right? Now, we don't preach that message because God has told us that he will not do that again. And what that tells me is that God cares about our feelings towards him. He wants us to know that he's not going to flood the earth again. And it also reminds us that God has spoken. He has spoken. That rainbow is a message. He is speaking to us. And we don't want to miss the truth of what is contained there. Any uh, question, comment as we wrap up here? Brother Jeremiah. What is, with regard to all these, all these different things that you have, you know, God is speaking to Noah and his family about, and you have made the application as though they would also apply to us today, correct? Yes, like the, the, the covenant. Yeah. Yes. Um, so how, how would you apply verse 1 and 7 to the family today? Okay, so, yeah, that's a good, a good question. And this might be a bigger topic than we can fully cover right here. All right, so one of the things that I want to be clear is the covenant itself does not contain verse 1, okay? So God tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But if you look at the words of the covenant, the actual covenant is given in verse 11, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the covenant. Okay. So there are people who use verse 1 and verse 7 to teach that birth control is wrong. And Christians should never use any birth control. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's just interesting that the only people who receive this command are Adam and Eve and Noah in the Bible. And it's super vital for them. To, um, to make sure the earth gets populated, okay? It was, it was very important. Now, if someone has a personal conviction about not using birth control, then you need to follow the Lord in that, and, and I wouldn't try to get in your way. Um, but I don't know that verse 1 and 7 are a part of the covenant, per se, because the covenant is unconditional, isn't it? Right? It's not conditional. It's unconditional. Okay, so um, the, the question about verse uh, 5 and 6, he specifically says, Who, whoever sheds man's blood, right? Whoever. It's very impersonal. Verse 7, it says, and you, right? So there is a, a bit of a distinction there. Um, and also, I mean, other scripture is very clear about murder and, and capital punishment, if you look in the law and so on. But what we don't find in the law 
that I find is a restatement of verse 1 and verse 7. So I don't find that in the New Testament. I don't find it, you know. Now this is pre-Mosaic law. All of this is pre-Mosaic law. And that's something that we don't always kind of process, but the, the covenant of Noah endures today. Like it's still in force, right? The Mosaic covenant was entered in at Mount Sinai, and it was entered in with the nation of Israel. And it's a conditional covenant. It is, if you do this, I do this. And uh, for, for us today, we don't live under the Mosaic covenant. We live under the new covenant, which was started by Christ when he gave his life on the cross. So um, all that to say is just that, you know, we want to make sure we are, like you say, carefully understanding what directly applies and what do we draw more principle from. Now, as I said before, if, if people believe that verse 1 and verse 7 apply to them in a direct sense, you know, then, then they need to do that. Um, the Bible calls children a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is his reward. So I certainly think that sometimes modern tools can be abused or used in ways God is not pleased with. Um, that's a big topic. Like I said, I don't think I can really get in there and lay out all of my, my thoughts and all that, but um, does that help with the to whom it's, it applies? All right, anyone else? Question or comment? Yes, sir, um, br Brother Paul, and is there anyone after him? Question or comment? Okay. Yeah, based on uh, verses 5 and 6, um, capital punishment comment, of course, this is all before Christ. Yes. And, you know, Jesus' blood on the cross itself, and then it, following in First and Second Peter, it says that God desires all to come to repentance and yes, and not, not necessarily revenge. You know, for someone who kills someone or multiple people, they I think they need to be in prison for life and have a lot of sense of word for local pastors and the chaplain if he's a Christian to give opportunity to repent. Sure, give them time to, to turn to Christ and receive that mercy and if he comes to conviction of the holy spirit that he should have his life taken for what he has done uh -huh. in the past before knowing choosing jesus yeah I, I think that's a good thing well i i certainly agree and from the angle that you know if murderers would hear the gospel they can be saved paul um considered himself a murderer and he, and he was right and he came to christ right and he was not killed for his his crime and there's others in the bible that we can find that example as well um, sometimes it is hard to separate between like government policy and Christian compassion or, you know, gospel mission and government mission and some of those different details. I, I will say, I think it's excellent and beautiful when we can understand that in the current time period, the government and the church are separate entities because there were times in history where people tried to blend them and it really got really nasty. It really got awful because people would be executed for not believing in the Trinity, you know, and it's just a very different uh, approach. So anyway, we certainly know the government should be informed by basic Bible principles, but at the same time, the church is the church and the government's the government. So um, anyway, that's a big topic as well, isn't it? Um, I want to close with this poem, and it, it's taking the picture of the, the bow in the clouds, the emblem, and drawing a connection to the cross. And this is what it says. The clouds may go and come, and storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not. My cross is ever nigh. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. 
No change Jehovah knows. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. I thought that was really great. Well, let's close with a word of prayer and um, we'll go through some announcements here. Lord, we thank you for this time in your house. I thank you for Genesis 8 and 9. And you've made a promise. And we just declare here today that you've been faithful to your promise. Never once have you flooded the whole earth. And if we're honest, we would would declare that you've restrained yourself again and again and again against the wickedness of man. And we praise your mercy and your grace. And... uh, we ask that many would be turned to you in salvation and that wicked man would turn and, and look upon you for sa- saving faith. Lord, we ask that we would be a people that remember your promises to us and that we have a deep faith, remembering that you remember your promises, Lord. And we declare that you've never broken one covenant, never one promise. And we love you and praise you for that here today. Help us as we uh, finish here and then go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.